Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Bootstrapped. I'm Andre Butov of Anter. I'm here as always with Ian Lensman from Userscape. And this week we're joined by a special guest, Andy Bryce from Oryx Digital and also uh, from uh, SuccessfulSoftware.net where he blogs about um, running a software company. Right. Hello, Hi. everyone. Hi Hello. There. And right. his uh, and his his flagship product, Perfect Table Plan, which is how most people probably know Andy. That's right. We started out with Andy uh, back in the day on the business software forums where every everybody started out apparently. Right. And um, back then he was starting out with Perfect Table Plan, and he's still running that to this day, from what I gather, right? Yeah, so eight and a half years later. So, I mean, I, I, I released the first version in uh, February 2005. And I thought, oh, you know, I'll be working on this for about a year. And then I will have done everything you can do for table planning. You know, how right. much could you possibly do? And then I'll, you know, I won't be able to make a living out of that. I'll start another product, another one. And I'll have a portfolio of products in between them. And I'll, I'll make a living. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's not quite how it worked out. Eight and a half years later, I'm still... Uh, I'm still working on it, and uh, I had a quick look the other day through my accounts, and yeah, it makes about 97% of my income, so I do a little bit of consulting um, on the side, mainly sort of marketing stuff to other small software companies, but yeah, about 97% of my income is still from Perfect Table Plan. And this is, this is um, to go a little bit in, uh, over what it does, it's a, it's a tool for... Well, last time I looked at it, it was a tool for wedding planners and organizers of events who need to make arrangements of uh, the way people are sitting in the hallway or arranges arrangements around the tables and whatnot, right? Yeah. So, I mean, the the history was I I was getting married uh, back in 2004. And um, we had to do a table for the reception because certainly here in the UK, you know, we, we, we like to be told what to do. You know, everyone needs to be told <laughs> where to sit. And, you know, it cuts down on the friction. I, I know in the States that that's not quite as common. You tend to have assigned tables or I'm told in the Midwest, everyone just sits where they like, no matter what they're told. <laughs> uh, but but it's certainly in the UK and a lot of the rest of Europe, people ha- expect to have signed seats with place cards. And, um, you know, and you try and make sure the right people are sitting next to each other, that, you know, two people who had a big argument three years ago aren't going to have a fist fight at your wedding. So mm-hmm. it's quite important to seat people in the right places. And so, so I said to my... Uh, my then fiance, I said, well, I'll, I'll do the table plan. You know, I thought 60 people, there's no family feud, feud or anything. Everybody gets on fine. You know, how, how hard can it be possibly to do that? You know, it'll take me, you know, half an hour or so. And um, I'm sort of back, I have quite a background in sort of optimization. And so I thought, you know, it's an interesting little optimization problem. And it was just a nightmare. You know, 60 people. And I ended up with like a table of three and a table of 15. <laughs> and, you know, you, you, oh, well, these two people should be together. But if I move them across there, I've got to move somebody else off that table. And I just thought, oh, this is a nightmare. So I wrote a very, very simple little um, sort of Mickey Mouse program to to do it, which we use for our wedding. Um, and, it, you know, it was only for me to use. And then things weren't uh, were getting a bit rocky at the the dot com company I was I was working for, and so I thought, well, you know, maybe I should maybe I should try and write a product that does that. So I went part time there, and they were quite happy for me to do that because money was getting tight, and I started working on it. And um, eventually, I I stopped work, I stopped doing any work for them and just concentrated on full time for a few months. And um, yeah, I got the first version out with with no idea about how successful it would be um, because. 
there were about two or three other sort of desktop-based seating planners at the time, and they all seemed really dead. You know, you went to their website, and you could sort of see the tumbleweeds blowing around on, the, mm-hmm. on their websites, and you just thought, well, yeah, okay, they're not that great, but, you know, they don't seem to be doing very well. I wonder if there is a market. So, you know, I phoned up a few event planners out of sort of cold-called a few people and tried to f- – you know, went to some shows, some wedding shows and things and talked to people and, and they said, yeah, you know, doing the scene plan is really tough and it is a real nightmare and, yeah, we do it with bits of paper or Excel. So I thought, mm-hmm. you know, maybe there's an opportunity there. So so that's how I got started and, yeah, I'm still working on it uh, eight and a half years later. Which makes you sort of like an outlier. It's a, it's a desktop application. How you get around the 99.99% piracy rate alone is bewildering <laughs> but to make a living off of a desktop application in, in a time when everybody and his cousin is building a SaaS app is, is pretty amazing well not really i mean they say you know when the elevator the guy in the elevator gives you tips on the stock market you should get out of the stock market right and i, <laughs> I think it's like that with platform is if everybody's saying oh you've got to write a SaaS app then maybe you should be writing a desktop app i mean Part of part of successful marketing, I think, is being different to everyone else. If right. you're just following the herd and doing the same as everyone else, it's very difficult to stand out. Um, I mean, part of it is for pragmatic reasons that my background is very much in desktop software development, not web development. Um, so, so it was partly that. But I mean, also, uh, Perfect Table Plan has a, a genetic um, algorithm built into it, so you can say, "I want these two people to sit together, but not sit anywhere near this guy," mm-hmm. and it will. Um, it will assign people to seats for you. And if that was to be done on a SaaS app, then, you know, you're going to have to have some monster server because the genetic algorithm, you know, is quite compute intensive. And I mean, the, the number of ways to see N people in N seats is N factorial and 60 factorial, which is a really quite a small wedding is a really huge number. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's more than the number of atoms in the universe. <laughs> and so, <laughs> So, you know, it's it's a tough problem to solve. You know, I, I can't guarantee to come up with a completely optimal, rigorous solution. Um, and, I mean, some of my customers are doing 1,000, 2,000, even 4,000 seat events. And 4,000 factorial, I worked it out. If you if you wrote it out in 10 point, you know, if you printed it out in a, in a, as a single number, it would be about 25 meters long. Yeah. So <laughs> that's the solution space. Crazy. So there's... There's no way that I want to be paying for the elastic compute server or whatever that's going to be crunching all that because on the really big events, some people will run, you know, they'll run the seating, the seat assignment for, you know, 10 minutes, maybe even an hour or more on a really big event. Um, So I'd rather they're doing that on their desktop. But I mean, there are also advantages, other advantages of desktops. Um, So for example, if you've got really sensitive information, so I mean, I know that Perfect Table Plan has been used to seat presidents and royalty and things. They don't want that sitting on some third-party server. Right. I mean, yeah. it's even considered a security risk. They don't want some potential assassin knowing who's sitting where and the event. So the fact that it runs on their desktop securely is, you know, that's a plus for them. Um, I mean, if you're an event planner who's assigning seats live at an event, and you imagine that, you know, your server goes down 10 minutes before the event or you lose your internet connection, it's pretty much a disaster. Whereas if it's running on a you know a laptop or a desktop at the event, you know as long as the laptop doesn't burst into flames, you know you're you're going to be covered. So, I mean, there are also issues around. I mean, the graph it's very graphically intensive in terms of um, it's got a you know a floor plan with potentially thousands of people sitting on it that you can zoom in and out. Um, 
which which eight years ago was was pretty tough to do mm-hmm. on a web app. Uh, I mean, it's much more achievable now, but it's you still get a lot more latency. Um, I think it's still a lot more clunky doing stuff like that with a web app. It's funny um, to imagine that uh, you you have a the perfect table plan website is sort of geared towards like a wedding type of environment, so it's all like pinky and bluey, <laughs> and to have something like that running on a computer in the White House somewhere doing like layouts for like dignitaries coming in from out of out of town is an interesting thing to imagine. Well, when I started off, it was very much aimed at weddings, and it was you know nineteen pounds ninety five or twenty nine ninety five dollars. There was only a single prize. And um, gradually, as it got more powerful and more functional, I, I, I split it into three versions aimed at the three segments of the market. And so at professional planners and sort of charity event organizers and people planning their wedding uh, at different different price points, which made, made a big difference to the sales. Um, and I think what was happening before, I mean, people talk about price as signal. And I think people were, you know, some of the corporate event planners were arriving at the website looking at the price Twenty nine ninety five, and thinking, oh, you know, it's not a serious piece of software, and just bouncing straight out. And as soon as they saw a price of two hundred ninety nine ninety five, you know, even though the software, you know, I'd added a few extra things on for the professional version, but you know, ninety percent of it was the same. Right. You know, suddenly that higher price tag made me a lot more credible, right. and I suddenly started to sell a lot more to organizations. And- it's it's like that old story, I don't know how old it is, but I've heard it a bunch of times recently where uh, the boss in some organization refuses to buy the small business edition of, of some plan, of some service, and he prefers the enterprise because he doesn't want account uh, payable or account receivable, whatever, the account department, to have small business edition next to the name of the company. They want to be <laughs> known as the enterprise, so they just pay for it just because it's the enterprise price plan yeah well, it's prices prices signal isn't it you know you're signaling what, who your product's aimed at and what the quality it has by how much you charge for it so mm. you know rather than people seeing it as a bargain if it's too cheap people just think well it, it can't be any good so i mean that was a big win for me just having the three price points i mean i actually had somebody email me today and and say you know because i try and get as much feedback as i can from customers and you know they generally like the software but they said oh you know but it's a bit cutesy you know i had to send my plan to <laughs> some somebody from a big corporation for this charity event and i i don't really like your logo it looks a bit too sort of fluffy um, that wasn't quite the words they used, but that was the implication. Right. But you know, you you can't you can't make everyone happy. And I, I'm not, you know, it's been out there for like eight years or so. I'm not going to rebrand it now. Right. I mean, <laughs> uh, I, I, one of the things in the software, you can say, well, these two people, you have a big matrix of all the people at the event, and you at each intersection, you can put um, either a heart to say, oh, you know, put these people next to each other, or a happy <laughs> face put them near each other or a sad face don't put them next to each other or a skull and crossbones don't put them on anywhere near each other and then the algorithm will, will try and do that for you um and you know some people have said oh you know i don't like the heart on there it's not really professional we're doing business <laughs> events but lots of people really love it so you know i could i could change it to be really bland and corporate and uh, but i think it's much better to have a few people hate it and lots of people love it than everyone just think well you know meh, it's okay <laughs> you know, it's better uh, to get some sort of react some sort of emotional reaction than none at all still got to have a little fun in there too once in a while you know it's uh yeah i th- i think so i think uh, that helps yeah i think you know you can have a little bit of sense of humor you can be a little bit playful and um um you know but still be professional at the same time or at least i hope so now the the desktop uh, you being uh, having a desktop app 
as your flagship product is not the only source of uh, being an outlier. You also wrote this in QT, right? Where back in 2005, I guess it would have been expected that you would have written it in C sharp. Was C sharp around in 2005 or MFC yeah. or whatever was around for desktop? Oh, MFC is such an abomination. I just refused to have it. I did, I did write an application once in MFC and I'd never do it again. It's just. <laughs> It's just so ugly, it should be taken out and killed. So was QT um, a general win for you, or are you regretting that decision eight years later? No, I think, I think it was a good decision, really. Um, I mean, my, my sort of progression as a programmer, as I started off with BASIC, you know, BBC BASIC when I was about 12, and then I went to university and did a degree in physics where they taught us Fortran. Uh, <laughs> and nice. then um, my first job, I did Fortran programming, doing sort of operational research and, and uh, trying to improve the scheduling of paper mills. And then um, I progressed on to C and then C++, and I've just sort of stayed with C++ really because it's it's such a powerful and expressive language. And, and in, in QT, or Q as some people call it, um, they have signals and slots, which is a really powerful uh, sort of runtime mechanism for connecting things together. So when you've got the, the object orientation and the templates of C++ and you add that to the signals and slots, uh, in, that are sort of added, layered on top in QT. It's a really powerful environment. Um, I mean, C++ is, is quite an ugly, inelegant language, but if, if you've used it as long as I have, you sort of know to stay away from the more dodgy areas. I don't try and be too clever or, or cute with it. You know, I, I sort of stay to a, a stable, reliable subset of the, of the language. But, I mean, the great thing about QT is that it's cross-platform. So you can write once and then you can deploy it on multiple platforms. And um, so a perfect table plans over 100,000 lines of code, um, more if you include, even more if you include all the generated stuff for all the windows. Um, and I, I compile it on Windows, deploy it on Windows, and then I compile it on Mac, deploy it on Mac. And the amount of platform-specific code is about 200 lines. Mm, that's wow. awesome. Uh, yeah. And so, uh, I mean, I'm still on QT4 because I've got bits and pieces in there. I, I need to move to QT5. But, um, I mean, on Windows, I think you really can't tell the difference between that and a, a native um, app that's been done with one of the Microsoft toolkits. On on Mac, you can. There's some things that don't look quite right and things don't – some of the controls don't quite line up properly. And, and your sort of Mac zealot can sort of see that from 100 yards away. You know, mm-hmm. so that, that's two pixels too big. Uh, um, so, you know, there, there are people who, who look at the Mac version of it and say, well, you know, it's not native. It's, it's, a, it's an abomination. It should be bricked up in a room somewhere because, you know, that's two <laughs> pixels too big. So, you know, I, I obviously don't sell to those sorts of people. But um, – <laughs> so people on the Mac platform seem to divide between uh, the zealots who were outraged that you didn't use Cocoa and Objective C, and the and the, the rest of the people who were just pathetically grateful you even bothered to deploy it on Mac. <laughs> right. So thankfully, the latter are in the majority. So um, so I mean, I sort of did that as a bonus, really. You know, I I knew Qt and. And as well as the cross-platform capabilities, it's very well written, very well designed, and very well documented. And so it was sort of natural for me to carry on doing it in that. And then I thought, well, I, c- I could release a Mac version as well. you know. And it was quite painful to, to get all the stuff like the, the installation through a DMG file and to get all that sort of stuff sorted out was pretty onerous. But once I'd done that, it's, it's really not much extra effort now to deploy it on Mac. Mm. Um, and Mac's about 15% of my sales now. And you weren't so, worried about the, the the dependency alone would frighten me. Just 
to be able to but do all you've always yeah you've always got a dependency and and also i mean so what happened with qt they were an independent norwegian company trolltech mm-hmm. and qt was their only product and then they were bought up by nokia who were going to use it as the sort of software platform that they were going to reconquer the world with mm-hmm. and of course, you know, as we know that didn't really work out so then they were uh, fairly recently sold off um to another company called Digia, so they own QT now. But it has these parallel um, open source and um, and and closed source licenses. So I mean, I used to pay like a thousand pound a year for the uh, for the commercial license, but once they released the LGPL version, mm-hmm. uh, it was sort of a no brainer to switch to that. Really, mm-hmm. um, and and they have this poison pill clause, so that if ever, if ever they stop developing it, it immediately gets released into the public domain. And Trolltech made Nokia sign that before they sold it. Cool. Um, so yeah, and I mean, I've got the full source for it on here on my computer. You know, I can build it and I can tweak it, and and I have gone in and made you know tiny little changes in the past. I mean, it's a massive. It's grown and grown. I mean, it's so comprehensive now. It covers everything you can think of. Um, you know, it's incredibly comprehensive. So pretty much anything you want to do. And it's even got elements of JavaScript and stuff in now so you can make hybrid uh, web and um, and desktop applications. And it's got um, a decorative language, you know, so you can do sort of decorative UIs. It's really massive. You know, I don't think any one person comprehends the entire framework. That sounds like a win, uh, like a win decision that you happen to have made back in yeah, 2005. Yeah, I haven't. I haven't really regretted it. I mean, I obviously had the occasional moments of frustration. I, I remember when they, uh, well, I think it was MacOS 10.7 came out and all the drop downs looked really weird in, in the, what, what was the latest version of QT at the time. They had all sort of noise in them. And, I, you know, me and a few other people contacted them and said, you know, this, you know, we can't support the latest version of Mac. All the drop downs are weird. And they just, this guy said, oh, it's not in our release schedule to fix that. It's like, what? You know, <laughs> Apple have just released a major platform and you don't support it. So, but they, they did eventually, they, they at least uh, issued a workaround. So I had to go in and patch the source and, and, and fixed it. But yeah, that was, a. but I mean, whatever you work in, you've always got some sort of dependency. Yeah. Now the, the, um, the product, you being able to make a living off of this thing for eight years now and it being your, your sole product, I'm gathering that the the uh, the strong point that you 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 have with this is the marketing behind it, right? Um, so one of the things that I know you did was to start the successful software that net um, site. Is it a blog? You call it a blog, or yeah, because it has a lot more to it than just it's a blog, blog with a few with yeah with some additional resources. And I remember when you first started it, uh, there was a really popular article that you posted on software award scams. For some reason, that's like <laughs> the one thing that always I always remember when I think about uh, the stuff that you published over the years. Yeah, that was my uh, that was my fifteen minutes of fame. Okay. And uh, yeah. I mean, the successfulsoftware.net, it's not there to promote Perfect Table Plan. And I can tell you, uh, it's had nearly 1.8 million page impressions. And analytics tells me that from that 1.8 million page impressions, I've sold seven copies of Perfect Table Plan. <laughs> so, so if I wrote it to try and sell Perfect Table Plan, then it, it's failed dismally. But thankfully, that, that wasn't the plan. It's really just there for me to sound off and, and also a bit to sort of promote the 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 consulting and training side of things. Um, but I mean, also to try and contribute back, a lot of people have helped me with, you know, tips and things to get, you know, especially in the early days when I knew nothing, 
Um, so, you know, it's trying to pay back a bit of that. So, you know, well, and also I'm just quite opinionated. I like sounding off about things. So, so if, well, if anybody's st- – sorry, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, so like uh, one of the things I always found fascinating with you is like – and I think this is quite contrary to – me and Andre for the most part is you've always seemed, and it kind of fits perfectly with perfect table plan in the sense, like you've always been very analytical about your marketing. You're always tracking everything. You're very careful and considered with, you know, how you've approached AdWords and and the different things you've done. So, um, you know, I don't know, maybe I think it'd be interesting for people to hear like maybe how you got started with that and what, you know, the most effective techniques you found, especially early on. And, uh, and just how you approach it, because I always know I found your approach kind of very interesting to the marketing. And I think that's all universal, even if a lot of people aren't planning on doing desktop apps. Um, that stuff's at least somewhat universal, I think, and uh, it's kind, of, kind yeah. of interesting. I mean, the basic principles of marketing don't really change because they're based on human psychology and you know human behavior rather than the technology. Right. Uh, but I mean, my background is that you know I've always been really interested in science. I did a physics degree. Um, and, and intended to become, you know, a cosmologist or an oceanographer or something before I got seduced by software. Right. And um, so, so you know, I'm quite comfortable around um, numbers. And, and um, so, yeah, so I always want to look at the numbers. I mean, it's sort of a scientific approach in that you, you, you form a hypothesis. Well, you know, maybe, maybe advertising on this medium will be effective for me. You try it. You measure the results. If it works, you do more of it. If it doesn't work, you you know you you either tweak it or maybe you just give up and go and do something else. So, you know, I sort of look on it as sort of a scientific experimental approach to marketing. Um, but the thing about marketing is, I mean, if anybody ever says to you, oh, you know, what's the best way to market this? You know, the answer is always it depends. Right. You know, there are certain universal truths, I guess, but um, in in terms of the particular channels you should take, you know, whether you should use AdWords or affiliates or search engine optimization or it just varies so much on one product and it also varies on your skills. You know, if you're a really good writer, then maybe you should blog. If you're a terrible writer, then, you know, you blogging's not going to be a good way for you to promote your business. So it, it's very difficult to say, you know, in general, this is what people should do. But I mean, I found AdWords very interesting because it's, you get sort of very quick feedback from it. So you can try all these little experiments continually all the time and you can try and learn about it. And, and most of the people doing AdWords don't really have much idea what they're doing. Right. You know, yeah, they, that's they, me. That's me for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so they don't bother to learn the first principles. Whereas I actually, you know, I got the Perry Marshall ebook and I read it all and I talked to some very smart people who knew a lot more about it than me. And, you know, I experimented a lot and worked out what works. And, I mean, AdWords was great for me for the first few years and was, was a significant amount of my sales came from AdWords. Um, but it's it's become a smaller and smaller as, – as the sales have gone up, it's become a smaller and smaller percentage because it's just become more and more competitive. You know, there's so many yeah. people out there bidding. The number of people bidding has increased much faster than the number of people buying. And most of these people have got no idea what they're doing. They're not measuring their conversions. They've got no idea – you know, that they're losing money hand over fist. Right. So they're just throwing all this money into AdWords and wasting it all and buying Larry and Sergey another jumbo jet. And um, <laughs> so, you know, it's, it makes it tough. And I mean, I've done, uh, I wrote a little blog post um, a few months ago uh, called something like uh, AdWords Diminishing Returns, or I can't remember the exact um, title of it. 
but um, I, you know, I graphed and basically every sort of key metric is going down, you know, the number of clicks, um, apart from the ones that are bad, like, you know, the number of um, the cost per click, the cost per conversion, they're all going up and up. It's, um, and, and I think, you know, gradually each, each sort of marketing channel sort of equilibrates to the point where, um, you know, you're getting minimal returns from it. In the early days, not many people know about it and you can get great returns from it. Uh, and then when everyone else piles, piles into it, then suddenly, you know, there's too much competition and the returns, you know, the margins get smaller and smaller, especially when people are spending more than they can get back. I'm sort of uh, in the same camp as Ian with, with my history with AdWords. And even now I'm experimenting with uh, Twitter ads, which is sort of – and I did Facebook ads back in the day. Um, it's sort of the appeal of everything being uh, automated and available for you to just click and launch, sort of the, the, the engineer uh, – the, the engineer in me is attracted to this sort of um, automated – campaign launching you know you, you kind of yeah. just just do things without talking to anybody and thinking about anything and you launch the campaign and you're supposed to get back you know x times whatever based on the x you put in and it's never worked out that way either with adwords or with facebook or right now going on a couple of days with the twitter advertising but it, the, the people that uh, seem to be saying well well something's not right here let me either read this book or or talk to some people they seem to be able to like you they seem to be able to sort of have an aha moment with adwords or something and all of a sudden everything clicks so it, it always seemed to be like this this sort of um either something is fundamentally broken with the way um an um an amateur looks at adwords or at platforms like adwords or or um there's something fundamentally broken with the way those things are designed and presented to you that sort of out of the gate, you're incapable of utilizing them in a way that would actually benefit you. Well, the, I mean, there was no eureka moment. Um, it's just a, a gradual grind of, you know, adding negative keywords, trying keywords, no, that keyword doesn't work, drop the bid for it, try a new keyword. I mean, it, it's sort of slightly seductive because it's like the sort of magic, you know, the story of Alibaba where you just have to know the magic word mm -hmm. and, the, you know, the gates open. Uh, and so you're there sort of in this quest to find the perfect phrase, you know, and the perfect bid price. So, you know, it's a bit like sort of sifting for diamonds, I suppose. It's, you know, I do... My wife and I went uh, in the outback of Australia years ago and you can buy like a bucket of gravel and you sift through it looking for emeralds and every so often <laughs> you'll, you'll find a tiny, tiny little one and it's really addictive. I can see how, you know, when you see these pictures, these guys with like three foot long beards, you know, living hermit-like existences, panning for gold, I, you know, I can understand the attraction of it, you know, just that uh, this big win is always just round the corner. So it's a bit like that, you know, you're sifting through all these masses of data, trying to find some gem. But I mean, gradually the click prices, you know, the, the number of the price, the bid price has gone up and up. So, so I'm faced with a position of either I can bid more and more and more, which makes it less and less profitable, or I can get less and less clicks. If AdWords has been uh, giving you sort of diminishing returns, is there something that has replaced that as your, as your uh, sort of a marketing wave, or is it like a, a whole bunch of little things that – Oh, it's loads and loads of little things. I mean, I'm continually trying new things, you know, LinkedIn ads, Facebook ads, you know – 
competition giveaways, you know, um, one day sales, you know, just, just, just everything I can think of, you know, whenever I hear of something that I haven't tried before, you know, quite often, if it looks like it might possibly work, I'll go out and try it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, I'm going to be talking about this at MicroConf Europe in, in Prague in, um, in a few weeks time. But, you know, pretty much any any form of promotion that you can think of, I've probably tried it at some point in the last eight years. And most of them weren't either didn't work at all or sort of work, but weren't really the effort, weren't really worth the time. But, you know, you just have to keep, you know, throwing stuff at the wall and, and seeing what sticks. Mm-hmm. Well, so I also imagine, yeah. like, at this point, do you, I mean, help thoughts a little bit in this kind of in this way, too, where you have a big existing customer base now and it's, to some degree self propels it's you know self propelled because you know you have people leave and they go to a new job and you know at their new event planning job they want to use perfect table plan because that's what they know how to use and uh you know people tell other people and you know a lot of word of mouth effects once you kind of reach a certain scale you know even more than um you know kind of the more formal advertising well, actually, yeah, and I know that's the case because being the analytical guy I am, I've actually managed to do a graph of, of word of mouth. Wow. Ian's opinion is word of mouth means I have no idea where these customers came from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, well, I actually, can't identify it. Well, you can could, you could do this. So what, what you do is um, – so I looked at all the search terms that people arrive on my website for, mm-hmm. and then I, I graph the percentage of them month by month that contain the word perfect – because obviously if they just put type table plan in and they ended up on my website or seating plan or something, they probably never heard of my product. Mm-hmm. Right. But if they put perfect something or other, then they almost certainly heard of my, my product somewhere. And so I did this graph. It starts off at zero and it gradually, you know, just goes up and up and up. So a higher and higher percentage of people buying the product have obviously heard about it um, before before they arrived on my website. So See, this is this is genius. I love this is why we love you because that's like so smart. Like like, <laughs> like my product like help like help spot like everything every single thing in my industry in at least in regard to help spot is like help something, help star, help this. Ah uh, but spot that. is the spot is the unique word. So that's if somebody true. arrives at your website and buys your software um Coming and they the include the word spot, then they've almost certainly heard of you from somewhere else. So you can, you can do that sort of stuff. I mean, it, that's not really very actionable. You can say, yeah, yeah, I've got lots of word of mouth. But I I did that just to show it at a talk I did, you know, the, the importance of of word of mouth. And, of course, you know, word of mouth you get from having it, not, not from great marketing, but having a good product and good support and, you know, treating your customers right. well. So you need to do all that initial marketing like, you know, AdWords and Facebook and everything to get people in the front door. But then if you treat them crappily and your product's no good – Right. You know, they won't recommend you to anyone else. So you know, you need. It's not enough just to have great marketing. So um, for for people who are interested in like learning the the marketing side of it and gain the, your wisdom of all of this, uh, they could sign up for consulting with you for uh, from uh, successfulsoftware.net. Yeah, so I do do um, one day consulting things. So the sort of pattern is someone approaches me, and 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 if if I think that I'm a good fit, you know, it's something that I can help them with. Um, I, I offer them eight hours of consulting, and so we do a big long phone call, and you know, ask them loads and loads of questions, and I go away and I try their software product, and I actually sort of screencast myself trying it and saying, "Well, you know, you should move this and do that," and I don't understand this bit, and so that's like a sort of usability study on how they can improve that sort of initial ten minute experience with the software, and then I look at all their marketing and their AdWords accounts and their analytics and everything, and then I write them a report. And then we do a 30-minute talk at the end. Um, 
and and I have been doing that for I don't know about three or four years now. Um, but I only do like a maximum of about one a month because I'm so busy with perfect table plan and other sort of other things that I don't have a lot of time to do that. And, and I have enjoyed it. Uh, it's been really interesting to do that. And I, I sort of hope I've really helped people. Um, the problem is that it's not very lucrative because the people I'm doing it for are generally at quite an early stage. Mm-hmm. I can't charge them like, you know, a thousand pounds a day or something because, you know, they're paying out their own pocket. They don't, right. you know, they might, they might not be selling that much in three months, you know, so it'd be pretty cruel to charge them a big lump sum. And then, although I say it's eight hours, typically it takes me like 12 hours you know, and, and so at the back right. of my mind, I'm always thinking I could actually be earning more money working on Perfect Table Plan. Right. But you know, I hope it's it's really helped some of the people I've worked with, and um, or in some cases, I I hope it's helped them to uh, you know kill their products faster because you know I draw out a big action plan, a big bullet list in the report saying you know you should do this, this, and this, and and then if you've done all that and you're still still nothing's happening, then you should just go and do something else. So. Right. Is a case of you know in some cases helping them to fail faster, which is right. you know good I think because yeah. I mean some of these people that you know think it's just not I mean some of the people that have, I've done consulting for are extremely successful and I was just trying to you know do tiny bit of polish here and there and maybe add a percentage point on here or there some of them you know really hardly any sales at all and trying to look at really you know what the problem was how could improve it but at least they have you know if somebody else has said to them you know, these are like 20 things you should do and they do all of those and it's still not moved the needle. You know, if they're still kicking a dead horse up the hill, then, you know, it's definitely time to go and do something else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you recently announced that you have a, a new project, which is a, a two-day sort of intensive training course for people who are interested in starting their own software yeah, companies. It's going to be like one of these, it's going to be like one of these cult weekends where I get them all in a room. <laughs> Bombard and, them with information. And wh- when and where is this, and for whom? Is it for people who are a little earlier than who are interested in starting but haven't started yet? Yeah, it's really so. It's going to be in uh, just near Swindon, where I live, in Wiltshire. So that's near Stonehenge. Uh, uh, for <laughs> for anyone who doesn't know, the UK. not actually at Stonehenge, but um, we're we're not too far from there. So it uh, it's in England, and it's on the weekend of the twenty second, twenty third of November, mm-hmm. um, and it's aimed at uh, everyone from people who are like guys who've got development experience and have always thought, you know, sitting there in their cubicle, oh, you know, I'd love to write my own software product, whether they're going to do that part-time in the evenings or whether they want to go full-time straight away, through to people that have maybe been doing it for, you know, six months, maybe a year or two, but they're still doing it part-time and, you know, the sales haven't really taken off. It's not aimed at people who've been doing it, you know, like five or ten years and are quite successful already. Okay, it's not aimed at them. Um, and it's not aimed at the guy who's had a sh- had an idea on the toilet that morning. Uh, <laughs> he's never written a line of code and has suddenly said, you know, I've come up with this genius idea. I'm going to get some software to de- developer to do 99% of the work and offer them 50% of the money. Um, so it's not for them either. So it's people who've got a software development background who know who know very little about how to do online marketing, don't know how to sell their software. And it's also going to come up some of the other basics of things like what an invoice is. Because, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really understand invoicing and accounting and VAT and forming a company. I didn't know any of that when I started. You know, I had to learn it all. Mm. Um, so... But but a lot of it will be market about marketing uh, because that's the that's the area that people typically struggle with. So is this? Um, are there seats available for this still? Where, where can yeah, people so, sign up? 
at the date that we're discussing this, there's, there's only 10 spaces, so I'm trying to keep it fairly small and interactive. Uh, and the first four spaces have gone already, and so there's six left at the time we're recording this. Um, and uh, just, yeah, just to get my cell in, uh, <laughs> the, um, there's a 50 pounds off if you book before the end of September, sort of an early bird discount. Um, so, yeah, so I'm looking forward to it. I mean, you could say for me, it's like scaling. I mean, the, the consulting, I can only do one to one, one person at a time, whereas potentially for the training course, I can teach, you know, 10 people at a time. And also they get the benefit of they can talk to each other about you know, because I mean, some of them will have already have businesses and tried things. And so it's going to be, you know, very interactive, I hope, and not just me standing there for two days talking. Mm. So... But people can find this. Sorry, Ian, I just wanted to uh, let people know where they can find it. They, uh, we'll post it All in the show links, but it's yeah. also, if you go to successfulsoftware.net, you have uh, a way to get there from the homepage. Yeah, right? there's a, just a tab on there called training. So if you just go to successfulsoftware.net uh, training, and then there's a, some blurb on there with some more details, and then just click the button at the bottom to say you're interested. One more reason I wish I was in England. <laughs> I think you're uh, probably a bit too far forward in the process, but yeah. But I suck at marketing. I, I'd sit through a two week two week training course just for the marketing lessons. Two days. Two days. Okay. Yeah. So so, uh, so whether so I'm interested though in why uh, you decided to do it in person versus you know doing it online. Um, like in terms of scaling it, you could theoretically scale it, but you might not want to go too big even online. But uh, do you have thoughts of maybe like perfecting it in person and then bringing it online or what you're thinking? Yeah, I don't know about that. I, do you know, it didn't even really occur to me to do it online. And then oh. suddenly start, people started <laughs> saying, well, you know, can you do it online? Because I'd like to go, but, you know, right. I'm in the US. And You should record I mean, them. You should record the videos and then sell those. Well, I think the problem... The problem with that is that I want people to talk about, you know, their issues and things True. that they oh, see, yeah. want to talk about on camera and maybe, you know, ways that they've, you know, struggled or their ideas for their products. And, you know, they're not going to want to do that if they're on camera. I mean, the other thing is a major motivation for me to do this is just to get out from behind my computer, you know, go and talk True. to some people. Oh, and, yeah, I, I understand <laughs> And that. it's slightly defeating the object if I'm, uh, you know, sat behind a computer doing it. You know, I haven't really gained very much. So, uh, I mean, potentially, uh, who knows? I mean, uh, I guess the progression is one-to-one consulting and then one-to-many training and then potentially, you know, somewhere down the line, I might write an ebook or do, a, a you know, some sort of online course. Mm. Uh, and then once I've run this enough times, you know, I, I hope they will get better and better each time. Um, and more sort of polished, and so then I can you know do a really a really good um, self contained course for people that can 't make it but but I think you always lose you always lose something if you 're not there in person you know there's yeah. the, the interactivity and also you know there 's so much information sort of conveyed face to face that 's quite difficult to do via you know a book or an email all those sort of nuances and the interactivity are lost so I think it 's always going to be better to do it in person. You know what would be kind of interesting too would be like um, doing it, you know, at a different location near some other event. So, like for instance, I'm going to Business of Software next month, and there's a couple guys doing kind of an email marketing thing, and it just happens to be in Boston the day before Business of Software. So, so you know, I pay them five hundred dollars, whatever it is, and I'm going to go do that. And I know these guys, you know, from the internet and so on, but. Um, like, you know, do it, you know, a day after microconf or a day before, or, you know, in Vegas or in Europe or whatever, like, you know, have a kind of a mobile version of it that, uh, that was kind of on site somewhere where people were already going, you know, there's going to be 400 people or 500 people in this spot. It could be kind of interesting once you have it down to 
to yeah, bring it on the road. Yeah, that's definitely an interesting idea. My wife actually suggested that. She's very uh, smart. I, I, I had <laughs> my wife said, you know, why don't you go and do it, you know, just before a conference or just after? So, I mean, that's a definite possibility. The, I guess the only issue is trying to, you know, work out what the venue's like because, I mean, if you're doing it in another country, you can't scare out the venue, you know, and you might get yeah, there and find – there's a pillar in the middle of the room, you know, and there's no, you know, there's no air conditioning. It's 300 degrees down there in the basement. You know, there's no right. windows. So, I mean, because I've, I've done it local to me, partly because I'm a bit lazy. Uh, but, I mean, no, ma- no matter where I did it, I mean, if I did it in London, I would have had to charge a lot more money. And also, mm-hmm. I would have had to travel into London and look at all these different venues. So, I did it close to me because it's out in the countryside. You know, the countryside's really nice around here. So, it's partly the idea that you get away from whatever your norm, your normal environment is and go to this yeah. different place which is out in the middle of the countryside has um, any anybody who signed up so far flying in or is everybody local so far just out yes of one's, one's coming from europe and three okay. are in the uk so far great oh no uh, i'm reading the class description i can't go it says if you're selling games or mobile apps don't yeah. come here <laughs> yeah because i mean that's, we got we got nothing for you Andre. i mean there's, there's, there's nothing that can help you well the thing is i wanted to uh, because i don't really think i can help those people selling into the mobile market is completely different to selling desktop or web software so i think you know i i mean i don't claim to know everything but you know i've been making a living for eight years and you know this is like the course that i wish i'd had eight and a half years ago when I started. Um, But I mean, I don't have any experience selling into the mobile market. Um, And and it's a completely different market, as you know. You know, all the normal channels like AdWords and things that are open to you with desktop and SaaS software just aren't really an option. So Mm -hmm. I don't really feel that I've got anything to contribute. And what I don't want to do is just get as many people on the course as I can, regardless of how appropriate it is for them. Right. Um, because yeah, you know, I mean, I watched some, some terrible documentary or what, well, it was a very good documentary, but it was quite depressing. It was about these get rich quick, uh, courses and there were, it was a British documentary. It was about these people who'd go on all these courses about getting rich and they'd spend a fortune to go on this course. And then some American guy, cause there was always an American guy with very shiny teeth and a nice haircut <laughs> would tell them, you know, that they just needed to believe in themselves and they could all be millionaires and have yachts and whatever. And then he'd take a massive, great big lump sum of money off them and he'd piss off back to Hawaii. Right. And, um, you know, and these people were all maxed out their credit cards and spent their inheritance. And, and they like interviewed them six months later and they still none of them had done anything none of them had started a business but they were going on another course and they were just going to do that one more course and then they were going to be millionaires and you know so so it's not a get rich quick scheme you know if if you if you think uh that you're going to start an own software business work four hours a day sip margaritas while someone on odes does all the work for you right. uh, don't don't come on my course because you know i'm I, i'm promising uh you know, <laughs> sweat. What was it? Winston Churchill said, "Blood, sweat, and tears." You know, it's right. it's not easy. It's not easy to start a software business, and I don't think I've ever met anyone who said it was who's actually done it. You know, yeah. people have these fantasies. I mean, you know, it's it, it's hard. And and what I'm hoping to do is, you know, to give people a good start. I and mean, I'm not promising success, but to just try and you know launch people in the right direction to get them to understand all the basic concepts and try and help them avoid all these hideous mistakes that I've seen people make so many times before. I mean, you mm-hmm. see all these guys on the business of software forum and things and they, you know, and, Oh, I've, you know, I've been working on this for three years, you know, in my uh, weekends and evenings 
and you know and, and, and my target market is you know chinese teenagers who use linux you know, i'm gonna make millions <laughs> you know and you just you know you do a face plant you know so it's it just i mean it's amazing how many people will sit down and spend months or years writing a piece of software without doing any market research without thinking how they're going to charge for it or who might use it or you know so yeah. we're going to cover all that sort of basic stuff as well as a lot of the more detailed stuff about you know uh, advertising and pricing and you know but ju- just try and try and get people to think about those things before they start writing the software because i mean you know we're all software guys and what we we feel safe and comfortable writing software and the temptation is always just to go and bang out the piece of software and then see if it sells um whereas in actual fact you know surely it'd be a good idea to spend a week or two talking to people and doing some research and finding out whether anyone's likely to buy it. Well, I feel uh, like, too, because we're, like, from the generation of, like, post.com, you know, wasteland. So, like, I feel like we were all, like, all right, what is a very practical way that we can, like, start our software business? Like, maybe Andre wasn't quite as practical. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, in general, like, we, well, a lot of people, and even with the with the spam filter, Andre, you were actually pretty practical there in that particular application that kind of really got you going. And like, you know, like we're gonna like look at this carefully and how can we optimize for success and things like that. And then now I think we're kind of back to that space where like you have this new generation of like, you know, Mark Zuckerbergs and the Dropbox guy and people who are just like at least seemingly, you know, in the in the media and things are just like one day they woke up and decided to build some crazy thing. And right, you, you're starting to see dollars. TV ads for dot-com startups already. Right, yeah. so you kind of have, it's kind of repermeated the like, well, I can just build something for this crazy, weird idea and it'll work because everything on the internet works. But, you know, obviously you really only hear about these huge successes and not the million people who built some crazy thing and it never sold one copy, so. Yeah, survivor bias, isn't it? Uh, yeah, it's, it's terrible. So, I mean, the, the media... Are really to blame for this because I mean, well, it's understandable. They fixate on the Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerbergs who, you know, the multi-billionaires with their right. own jets and things, and they completely ignore, you know, all the thousands of people who who, who work for, you know, work for peanuts for five years and then ended up with nothing, or right. you know, you know, got to the checkout of the supermarket and you know had their credit card refused because they had no money left, you know, and their kids are hungry and whatever. So. Yeah, it, the picture you get is completely skewed. And people like the three of us who are just making a nice living, you know, just, just to have a little, you know, a sort of a, 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 in my case, a niche product that, you know, I've really, you know, really tried to market the heck out of and, and you know, and also make it the best in its its niche. Yeah, that's not really very sexy for right. the, that's not very sexy for the, the newspapers or, you know, the dot-com uh, websites. But I mean, you know, it's a nice lifestyle. I mean, you know, I get up in the morning, I have my coffee, I see my son, you know, I, I, I surf the web a bit, I answer some support emails, you know, I wander down to my office, you know, I don't have to bother to put a tie on or, um, <laughs> you know, I, 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 I do a few things, I answer a few more emails, I'm, you know, mow the lawn, go out for a run, you know, I mean, I put the hours in, you know, it's, uh, but you know, I have a really flexible lifestyle. You know, uh, I know Andre hates the term lifestyle business, so I probably, <laughs> sh- uh, I probably shouldn't use that. But you know, that sort of flexibility is 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 brilliant, and I I wouldn't really trade that for you know 
having a jumbo jet or so i mean we all have different aims you know i'm not particularly interested in being the next mark zuckerberg and it you know it's not going to happen in table planning software realistically right uh <laughs> I, th- I think ian was sort of uh, sort of right in the money when he said it, it could be a generational thing because right now these guys are being inspired by what they're seeing on hacker news and uh tech crunch and and facebook and all of that but i remember one of my early inspirations was actually i don't even know if they're still around this um uh, association of shareware professionals ASP oh, yeah. was at the site uh, yeah, and this was it. this was a forum that you couldn't even you, you could only access it through like it was a newsreader or something it wasn't even a web based software at, at the time and you had to pay money in order to be there but I remember being there for six months or so and one of the guys one of the wise old men on there was like this guy who wrote uh uh, area code or zip code software back in the late 80s or something. And all it does is sort of show you the details about a specific area based on the zip code you enter. And he's been making a living off this thing for like 35 years. Yeah. <laughs> and that that's the sort of thing. Or Thomas Warfield, uh, who's I think he was also on there for a while. He he has the, the pretty good Solitaire, Solitaire product. And that's a Solitaire game that's been around for like two decades now. And he's making a living off of that so sort of those sort of stories where yes i worked my ass off for you know a couple of years but now like this is my product and i'm just making a living off of it just like like a guy who owns a, a little restaurant or a little grocery store or something is just something i happen to make a living off of it and that was i think the practical inspiration behind stories like that i think was much more useful to get me where i am as opposed to like the stuff you read in hacker news now and uh, um yeah the asp the asp is still going i mean i'm still a member actually uh but i i think they have you know they have declining membership because they're very much associated with the windows software and windows software is you know is a falling a falling star really you know not many people are writing uh, Windows apps now, so, and I think that's probably going to get you know even worse now that Windows 8 is out. Um, <laughs> so I think unfortunately they haven't really managed to you know associate themselves with SaaS development and mobile and all the other things. So I, th- I think that's uh, you know led to some issues to them. I mean, a few years ago they did rename themselves from the Association of Shareware Professionals to the Association of Software Professionals. Right, because that name just just carries so much baggage yeah. with it. <laughs> yeah, I always tell people don't use the word shareware. And I actually right. wrote um I actually wrote a blog article for their uh, for their blog uh, called Shareware is Dead, Long Live Shareware, which was basically saying that okay, with the term nobody really uses it now. You probably shouldn't use it, but it has been important because. The guys who founded the ASP were were sort of instrumental in this whole idea of try before you buy. I mean, it used to be if you wanted software, you had to go in the shop and buy, pay the full price, mm-hmm. and then you know have lovely cover art, and you think, wow, this looks great, and you get it home, you rip off the shrink wrap, and you put it in your computer, and it'll be a piece of crap. You know, they spent more on the box cover art than they had developing the software. <laughs> So, I mean, the ASP was really one of the major forces in pushing try before you buy. So, you know, in some ways, they've been extremely successful to the point where I guess they've achieved their mission. Um, and, and so that was quite interesting. So I got to exchange some emails while I was writing this article with with some of the original guys who pioneered the concept, including the guy, uh, his name was Button, who actually came up with the concept and the name in the first place. Mm-hmm. So that wow. was quite being able to uh, email some of these luminaries from back. I mean, some of these guys made millions from the shareware market, you know, from just sending out CDs in the mail, you know, and people would send money back. 
Um, you know, they were very successful, some of them. And I, and I think some of the guys in the ASP, you know, are, you know, they've been doing it for years and years, and there's some very smart people there. And so, you know, I mean, if, if anyone's listening, the, the great thing, I mean, the main benefit to joining them is their forums. And, um, you know, you have to pay the membership to get access to the forums. And there are some very smart people on there who've been making a living out of software for, for a long time. But, um, yeah, I, th- I think the sort of membership is is declining. I think they're struggling just because of the changes in the industry. Well, yeah. the, the concepts, a lot of the concepts, even though the name might not have carried over, a lot of the concepts stayed with anybody who's selling any software online or calls themselves an indie developer or any micro SV or anything like that is really following the, the sort of broad strokes of shareware. Yeah, it's quite an interesting history. If you if you Google for the article online, it's got some quite good quotes in it. I mean, uh, it's called "Yeah, Shareware is Dead, Long Live Shareware." I think if you yeah, Google, we'll definitely link that. Yeah, we'll that's, link that. that's uh, interesting. But there's some there's some quite good quotes from some of the guys who were involved in the early days, including the <laughs> including some of them who weren't very happy that the ASP rename you know dropped the shareware term. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so it's quite a good read, I think. So right. kind of looking like at the future in that in that regard, right? Um, like have you thought about, you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit and maybe in sassifying perfect table plans, probably not, uh, do you know, I must get totally uh, actually, possible, I'm, but could you do like the, the, you know, get rid of the $29 version and that's a SAS version. And then if you want the higher levels, you know, you have to uh, download that because that does all this intensive calculation and things like that. Like, have you given any of that, that thought to any of those kind of things? Yeah, I've thought about it. I mean, I get asked this every week. Right. You know, <laughs> by some software developer or other every week, you know, and they, they always think they're the first person that's asked me that. Right. I don't <laughs> so, think you know, that. Why, I, I definitely yeah. do not think that. You know, why, why don't you have a web version of Perfect Table Plan? And, uh, I mean, there's a number of reasons for it, but um, the main one is, um, I mean, you might be amazed to hear, I, I have a list, uh, being the sort of, you know, uh, uh, angry retentive sort of guy I am, I have a list of all my competitors, right. and there's about 130 of them. Really? Uh, yeah, I mean, wow. they're not all. There's not all pure table planners. Right, Some right. of them are just event apps that happen to have a bit of table planning in, mm-hmm. and um, they're nearly all web apps. Right. Okay, mine's one of the very few desktop ones. You know, maybe ten percent of them are desktop apps, and the other ninety percent are web apps. And most of the web apps are free. And and the thing is, consu- uh, th- This is maybe not so true for business anymore, but consumers think if it's on the web, it's free. Right. And there's loads and loads and loads of free wedding websites where they basically get you in for free and then they try and sell you wedding dresses or, you know, what, or limos or whatever it is that they're right. trying to make money. driven or whatever, yeah. Yeah, so there's loads and loads of those and, and lots of them have table planners and they range from not good to really, really bad. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you're just using it once for your wedding and you're quite budget conscious, you know, you're probably prepared to put up with that and you, you might use that. So, I mean, the trouble would be if I were to move into the, you know, have a web version, um, yeah, I'm going to be competing with all these free wedding apps and I'm going to have to produce something much, much better than they've got before anyone's going to pay for it. And also I have, uh, I have now a web-based direct competitor who has, I think, something like $3 million in funding. <laughs> ah. Uh, who, I, who I'm not going to give them any publicity. <laughs> no, that's fine. <laughs> but, um, yeah, so, I mean, and they've got like 20 staff. Right. You know, right. So I have to say my software is still a lot better than theirs. We've got an eight-year head start, so that's good. Yeah, but I mean, they're, they're burning through money and buying ads left, right, and center. But, you know, they don't, it doesn't seem to be hurting me so far. So, I mean, if I were to start now, 
I mean, you know, if I was going to do it, the right time to do it would have been, I don't know, three or four years ago. But, I mean, it's just me. So if I had spent all my time trying to produce a web version of Perfect Table Plan, I wouldn't have been able to improve the desktop version. You know, it's right. one or the other. And, I mean, you know, quite a while ago, I could have taken on employees and I could have taken on coders and marketing people. And I just made a decision that I didn't want to do that. I mean, I have a really nice life. You know, I have no employees to worry about. I hardly even use, you know, contractors or, or freelancing people. I just work where, when I want, where I want. You know, we went to New Zealand for a month uh, over over Christmas, you know, and, you know, nobody, know, nobody knew I was gone. I didn't have right. any employees to worry about. I don't have to worry about meeting payroll. Well, even you know, more than that is the aspect of like, I mean, we, we have this kind of unfortunately even before Snappy and the SaaS app, but like um, – that need to always be available. Like, you know, if it's just a desktop piece of software, they have it on their machine. Like you might have one individual customer with some kind of problem, but you're never going to have a problem where, you know, all your customers can't use the system. So like, you know, you can go away and it's fine, you know, but with, uh, even with HubSpot to some degree, just in terms of businesses that kind of depend on it and paid a lot of money for it. But also, especially with snappy, like, you know, when you have a SaaS app, it really has to be up all the time and you have to be watching it all the time because something's going to always break in the middle of the night or some inopportune moment. And that does totally change kind of the lifestyle aspect of it. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, that would day. make me, that would make me sweat, you know, right. if I was going on a holiday and, you know, I thought I had this server that, you know, thousands of people were using every day, you know, right. that would, <laughs> that would make me nervous. It does. So, yeah. So, but I mean, it, it depends what you want out of life. I mean, if you, sure. I mean, it's very noble to grow a business and employ lots of people and create a great culture and whatever. But I rather selfishly, uh, <laughs> I've just sort of developed a really nice life for me. You know, my family, where I make, you know, I mean, I make significantly more than I ever did when I worked as a full time employee. You know, as a senior sort of software guy, so you know it does very nicely, and um, I have this huge amount of flexibility. Uh, I mean, it, it, it's not all. You know, I'm not sitting under some palm tree si- si- sipping daiquiris all all day. You know, I, I do have to do quite a lot of work, and and some bits, you know, pretty boring. Uh, you know, I don't have somebody else to empty the rubbish bins or uh, right. uh, I, I, I've managed to outsource the accounts to my wife, you know, the bookkeeping. Uh, that's good. That's good. <laughs> so because, I mean, that got to the point where that was taking me half a day a week, you yeah. know, which was a bit frustrating. But I mean, I still do all the support myself. You know, I do a lot of the testing. I do all the coding. Um, you I do you have a phone number and a live chat on your site and you're not uh, running around chasing that all day? Okay, well, the live chat is actually an A-B test, so you're looking at one of the four. Oh, look at that. I got caught in that. I was going to say, I don't have it. I got caught in that. So it's an A-B test, and I'm interested in putting live chat on there, but my worry was maybe there's something wrong with the live chat widget or people Mm. see it and it'll put them off. So I'm actually uh, A-B testing uh, a few versions of the page at the moment. One of them has got the chat on, but it's never sort of turned on. It's always just like leave an email. Uh, and I just wanted to see if that made any difference to the conversion rate, and it basically makes no difference whatsoever. So at least I know the software is not really slowing down the page load or causing any problems. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I might actually start turning it on. <laughs> but the trouble is that, you know, I mean, I was listening to you talking to one of the 37 Signals support guys in one of right. the other right. podcasts, and, you know, you don't want to be in you know, mid, mid-flow mid doing something else, and then suddenly this thing starts popping up. So yeah, I, I think it's tricky. 
turning it on for a few hours at a time, but I was just curious as to what effect it would have. So, you know, it's just another little experiment. You know, is it, was it just the fact that, you know, there was a live chat widget there, was it going to slow down the page and mean less conversions or was it going to give people a, you know, a feeling of, oh, you know, this guy, you know, they've got some sort of chat support. I can easily click on that and send them a message with that increased conversion. So you just don't know till you try. Mm. What do you use to track these things? Just Google Analytics or some it's other? Visual Website Optimizer, which is okay. extremely, extremely good. They should they should send me uh, they should send me something like that. They should give me <laughs> uh, yeah, it's um, I'm using uh, that, and and it's surprisingly good actually. Um, I I did use uh, Google uh, Website. Uh, sorry, Google Conversion Optimizer, I think it was called, or Google Website Optimizer, whatever they called it. Mm-hmm. They had a standalone product, and then I used that for a while and ran a number of A-B tests, and then as Google does, the, you know, when something gets really useful, they kill it. So they killed it, and then they moved. They somehow moved it inside analytics, and I never quite got around to um, – I never Figuring quite got around out. to – Well, I just – you know, there was always something more interesting to do. Right. And then um, I got an email from Patrick McKenzie. I'm signed up to his newsletter, which which is really good, by the way. You should sign up to it if yeah. you haven't. Anyone who's listening who hasn't. And, uh, you know, he he was making the case for A-B testing, which sort of gave me a bit of a kick up the backside. And lots of people have told me how good Visual Website Optimizer was, so I – I did the trial. You can do a free trial for a while, and it's really well thought out, really nice, uh, nice service. So I started doing that. And there's something sort of addictive about A/B testing because, <laughs> sort of addictive and frustrating because you know you create these several versions of the page, and uh, you know you think, well, maybe this one will be a little bit better, and you run the test. And to start off with, of course, the the results aren't statistically valid, and it will say, well, we think this one's. This one's getting 20% more conversions or maybe even 100% more. And you get really, really excited. And then gradually over time, <laughs> the difference level gets though. smaller and smaller and smaller until eventually they say, well, we're 95% sure that that's 0.5% better. Right. <laughs> uh, so, you know, it's like a really slow horse race, you know, which – but, you know, I think it's a good thing to do because – I mean, I, I think people are looking for this huge win. They think that they're going to have an idea in the bath one day and they're going to take a, a, you know, a day to implement it and they're going to be a millionaire. And it doesn't happen like that. I mean, as, as you yeah. guys know, it's, it's like years and years of just chipping away and polishing and polishing the product, polishing the marketing, you know, improving the documentation. It's just all those little things that you're continually polishing that improves it. Um, so... Yeah, it just helps you to that. It helps you with that polishing process because you don't really know what's going to work until you've measured it. And and even if you can only get a few percentage points improvement with each test on average, that compounds up over time to quite significant improvements. Hmm. Uh, yeah. And the other thing that's interesting is that the winner is almost never the one you think it's going to be. Right. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, there's some websites out there. I forget what they're called. I'll, I'll send you a link if I can find it. And and they basically show you two A-B tests and you have to try and guess which one did better. So they show you them side by side and you click on the button and say, well, I think that, one's the, that one would be better. And my, my hit rate on those is, is about, I don't know, 51% or something. It's, it's only just above chance. Right. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. I mean, most people don't even know how they're going to react most of the time, let alone right. how other people are going to react. So... Yeah, I think, you know, that's the message. We, you know, try and measure things and, and find out what works. You know, you need to use your intuition to decide what to try, what what order to try them in, what to do, um, but try and measure them to see if they actually worked or not. I have a personal – sorry, go ahead. 
I just had a more specific question. This is totally uh, selfish, but while I have you here, I had a, a question on a very specific technique. I don't know if you've tried. So, um, in our, you know, in my industry, it's very expensive to advertise because there's tons of VC-backed companies, and uh, you know, there's tons of just competition. You have like a thirty-two dollar click rate. Yeah, like first first <laughs> well, page on Google. Like it used to be like ten dollars, and now it's like literally like twenty, thirty dollars, and like. So and at the price point we sell at, we'd have to have a pretty high conversion rate, which an unrealistically high conversion rate. And so, and I've never put the proper time into AdWords, so maybe I could make it work. Um, but it would take you know a pretty sizable investment up front just to even see if it if I can make it work. And obviously, I'm certainly going against professional teams of AdWord guys, um, you know that these other companies employ. So it's. It's definitely tricky. And then, as you mentioned before, between the professionals who are highly optimized and then just random people who happen to have millions of dollars who just dump money in, uh, you know, it's kind of the, the whole system's a little bit, uh, you know, rigged slash funky. Oh, absolutely. And it's, it, well, it's not even rigged in the in the venture-backed capital company's right, favor. Right, it's no. rigged in Google's favor. <laughs> right. I mean, if you set up an account, if you set up an account in AdWords and you accept all the, the defaults, Default, right. Yeah, you're an idiot, basically, right. <laughs> because, you know, Google have set them all up to, you know, in their favor, and sure. they're doing whatever they can to inflate the bid price very effectively. I mean, some the more cynical people think that's why they're giving out all these, you know, $100 free vouchers is just oh, to inflate sure. the click rates for everyone out, the, the, the bid prices. Uh, but they'll say, oh, you know, you need to spend $5 to get on the front page, in which you probably don't. But, you know, if you mm. just accept that and the, and they're telling there. everybody else that as well. Well, like, okay, well, he put $5. I'll tell the other guy he's going to spend <laughs> $6 to get on the front page. So although they're not evil, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're you know, <laughs> a bit borderline at times. Um, so, so, yeah, it's, it's tough. I mean, when you're competing in a market like that where you've got a high ticket price and lots and lots of people competing – it's yeah, it, it's tough. But I mean, I used to be able to get click-throughs for a few pence. But I mean, it's very hard now. Um, I have to spend you know more and more to get the click-throughs, or either that or just get less and less click-throughs. Right. Yeah. So so one of the things I've seen that's gained popularity, and I definitely see competitors doing this as well. So um, it's probably not extremely affordable necessarily either, at least in my space. But it's it's more intriguing to me is the concept of like retargeting. Uh, you know, along the content network, just because it's like somebody's already seen your site, they already know what you're about. So that's for people who don't know. It's like where um, you're cruising on a website and they see an ad for HelpSpot, even on a website that it's not necessarily a HelpSpot website uh, because they know you've been to the HelpSpot website within a certain number of days or something like that. So um, I don't know if you play with that at all, but to me that seems like you already have at least some type of loose relationship there. And bringing people back in who've already found you seems somewhat more intriguing than uh, yeah. just shooting Cy- in the dark. C- cyber stalking. That, that right. thing is actually <laughs> very. It exactly. is. It is very um, uncomfortable. I, I watch the video while my son eats uh, uh, his his meals. We watch music videos, right. which is on YouTube, and we finished watching some music video, and then I get a ping on my phone, which is an Android phone, and this ad comes up says, "Did you like this video? Would you like to buy the single now?" And that's like a very Wow, uncomfortable really feeling. connected there <laughs> <laughs> right yeah i mean it's quite dangerous you can imagine if some guy's got some secret transvestite habit and he likes to go into <laughs> underwear websites you know and then and then a, a week later he surfs over to somewhere he's showing his wife something and there's all these underwear ads down the side and so, you know, might have a bit of explaining to do 
but um i haven't tried it myself it's on, it's quite high on my to-do list i just haven't got around to it yet uh i mean on the one side it can be a bit creepy and i think but i mean you can configure it and there are other companies apart from google doing it companies like AdRoll, um that some of them which have even have free trials um so i I've, it's definitely something i'm going to try uh, part of the reason I haven't done it is I, I've got to find someone to do all the creative, you know, all the pictures and whatever, um, which I yeah. just haven't got around to yet. But I, some people that I know who are quite um, experienced AdWords people have told me that yes, it does it does convert very well. I mean, you you know, it's very cost effective. I, I guess you never know. Maybe those people are going to come back and buy your product anyway. That's true. So you know, it's difficult to know from that. But you know, all you can measure is well, yes, they they did come back and buy it. Right. Um, but yeah, I mean, AdWords is a, a really complex machine with so many moving parts and it's getting more and more complex all the time. And people, I mean, I've looked at lots of other people's AdWords accounts and people make all sorts of really basic mistakes. Like, you know, they're trying to, they're advertising a, you know, a $200 development tool in the Philippines and things like that, that, you know, there's, right, yeah. you know, and people in the Philippines, they'll happily click on your ads, but they're never right. going to buy it. <laughs> so, you know, there's all sorts of, yeah, I, I mean, that's just one example. I've seen all sorts of other stuff where people are bidding, you know, too much in the wrong places or using the wrong keywords and they've got no negative keywords. I mean, so for example, in, in the early days of Perfect Table Plan, I found that if you advertise on seating plan, you get loads and loads of um, traffic for people looking for football stadium seating plans. Mm-hmm. You know, they type football stadium seating plan. Your ad comes up saying, you know, wedding seating chart. They click on your ad because (laughs) it's it's not costing them anything. It's a link. They click it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You you know, I guess they're like sort of Pavlov's dog. You know, something comes up and they just click everything, including your completely untargeted ad. So, you know, you need to pay a lot of attention to bid prices, negative keywords. And there's so many other things. Uh, I mean, that's sort of some of the stuff that I do. I mean, I'm, I don't consider myself an AdWords expert. There's guys out there who eat, sleep, and breathe sure. this stuff, you know, 24 hours a day. I mean, I, it's, I've done it for like ever since the, the early days of Perfect Table Plan, and, uh, and I'm still getting you know, moderate profit from it, although it's getting harder. But, um, yeah, I do – most of the people's accounts I've looked at have had, you know, howlers in there. I mean, somebody told me once that he, he, he looked at somebody's account and they were getting all these clicks that never converted and he found out that they, there was a music band with the same name as their software product. <laughs> so all these fans of this band were typing this phrase in <laughs> and then clicking on the ad for this software product. You know, when, wow. Um, and here's, here's, okay, so here's an actionable tip for people. Um, I need to just remind myself of the exact uh, item. If you go into AdWords... Okay, select all your campaigns and then go to the Dimensions tab. And then where it says View, it will say View Day. Pull it down till it says View Search Terms and have a look in there for like the last 30 days or so. And you'll see the actual search terms that people were using to arrive and click on your ads. Mm. And you'll often find there's loads of completely untargeted stuff in there. So that's a good place both to find new terms to bid on and more importantly to find negative terms. Um, so that's a little. And sometimes you got to get to just the, the the maze of the analytics UI just to get to what might be useful. Yeah. Hey, if you think AdWords is bad, try using Bing Ad Center. It's <laughs> oh, uh, it's horrific. 
It's like somebody tried to make a copy. It's like it's like they got twelve guys to make a copy of uh, of AdWords, and they let they let them look at it for an hour each, and then didn't let them talk to each other afterwards. <laughs> it has it has got a bit better, but it's still pretty painful. Yeah, Did you just bother to advertise on these alter those kind of alternative search engines? Or you yeah, I do Google? advertise on Bing, but there is. I, I mean, I I think it's like something like seven percent. I get like less than a tenth the number of clicks, and they convert a lot worse as well. And also that I mean, like the minimum click price on uh, Bing is five pence. Mm-hmm. So you know, you you can't. You know, some of the long tail terms, it's just not even worth spending five pence on. But that's their minimum, so it mm. restricts you know the number of long term. Uh, keywords you can search on um, the number of long tail keywords you can search on so yeah. yeah I'm not a big fan of Bing but yeah I I have all sorts of things running like that and you know as long as it's br- measurably positive ROI I, I need I let it keep running but the thing is you do need to check them and I go in every few weeks and you know I look at I have a quick dig around and make sure nothing nothing bad is happening um, a lot of people they set up their AdWords account and then they never look at it again and they wonder why it's you know it's right. it's not doing very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I have I have one continuously running campaign that's just for like the direct search on Help Spot and that's <laughs> like there's nothing else it does. It's like you know yeah, hundred dollars a month. It might be worth bidding on some of the really long um, because your ticket price is high. It might be worth bidding on some of the um, the long tail keywords you know that are three or four words long. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I gotta because, get back to. I always say I'm gonna really dig into it. Like I have the the Marshall book, and I have like I have all these things. I'm like I'm gonna dig into it for real this time, and then I always get like something. I start to dig into it. Like I'll read like five pages, and I'm just like, oh my god, I don't know, I don't know about all this. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, we gotta get bigger so I can hire somebody to think about this because I don't know, I don't know if I have the bandwidth. Yeah, but then you at least know, need to know enough about it that you know whether they're doing a good job or not. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's the same <laughs> so yeah. As yeah, it's useful to have some skills in that area. But yeah, I mean, there's so many different things you can tweak out. And every month goes by, they add something to make it more complicated. And, you know, the more cynical people might think they're actually deliberately making it complicated. Yeah. So <laughs> to make it difficult to know whether you're getting a return or not. I and, think, and like years ago, I actually did hire a, an actual company to do it. It's pretty well known kind of in our circles, which I'll leave them nameless. But um I think I gave them a budget. I think they did like six thousand or nine thousand dollars, and presumably they, you know, and it takes a while to like get these things ramped up. So, I, you know, I'm not going to totally blame them, but I think the, I don't think we got one sale. Like they spent all <laughs> like six or nine thousand dollars, and we didn't we didn't have one conversion. So uh-huh. it's like uh, I think after that, I was like, uh, I don't know. Maybe it's <laughs> Yeah, it's tough. I mean, also the conversion uh, tracking is is far from 100% because, I mean, in your case, somebody might have looked at it on one machine and then have gone and talked to his boss who then put the credit card number in on a different machine and it wouldn't measure that as a conversion because obviously there's… It's limited to 30 days in Google too, right? Which, I mean, our trial is 45 and often we extend. Like, you know, our sales process is just longer than that. I never understood that. Like, what's the Like, why limit it to 30 days? Like, it doesn't even… Even if they made it 90 days, you'd still get that problem of people surfing on one machine, clicking on the ad on one machine and then buying it on yeah. another machine. Well, we would get that a lot for sure. But I mean, our yeah. native sales cycle is just longer than 30 days. So like right there, you're going to lose even people who play it straight and it's them and they go back and buy it. Like we're going to lose like almost all of those conversions. Cause no, but what you need to do in that case is try and um, track the downloads. So just yeah. track the number of trials and then hopefully in analytics, you can work out roughly – 
you know, from from AdWords. Not my conversion percentage there. Yeah, this what is, my yeah. percentage conversion is from AdWords, and know roughly what you should bid. Yeah. Um, so you'd have to do it that way, I think. So you, it's difficult to do it directly. Yeah, um, that's true. But there are ways. There are ways around it. More work. <laughs> Andy, <laughs> what, what, Andy, what is capoeira? Oh, capoeira. It's uh, uh, yeah. Okay, how long have you got? It's uh, it's <laughs> it's it's a, it's a Brazilian martial art. It's sort of part. Du- Part martial art, uh, part dance, uh, part music, and part showing off. I saw some videos, Andy, <laughs> on Facebook. Yeah, well, it's um, uh, it's interesting because the three things that I really hated at school were gym, foreign languages, <laughs> and most of all, music. And yeah, I found myself doing a, uh, a martial art where everything's in Portuguese and it involves singing and clapping. And, I, <laughs> and I, I'm a terrible, I'm a terrible singer, especially trying to sing in, in Brazilian. But uh, no, I really love it. It's um, uh, when you see break dancing, a lot of that actually comes from capoeira originally. So it's lots of um, spinning high kicks and ground moves and handstands and you know for the people that are good enough back flips. Um, so I've done martial arts since I was ten. Uh, uh, and I'm 47 mm. now, so you know I've just tried to keep going, really. Um, and I, I mean, you know, I, I've sort of had gaps in that time, but I, yeah, I just really, uh, I really love it. And um, it's, I, I had a detached retina a few years ago from getting uh, elbowed in the head, so I try not to <laughs> oh, do geez. anything. Yeah, which is not good. And they said, oh, there's some damage in the other eye as well, and I had to have emergency surgery to reattach it and everything. So oh I try to avoid getting kicked and punched in the head too much. <laughs> Capoeira is quite good because it's sort of. Uh, mostly non-contact unless things go wrong but right. yeah it's a, it's incredibly good exercise and um you know it keeps me flexible and and also it's very hard to think about work when someone's trying to kick you in the head <laughs> a lot of programmers i noticed uh, as hobbies go tend to fall into the three music cooking or martial arts yeah i noticed that at university all the martial arts guys were all like engineering physics guys you know computer science guys uh, I don't know what the. I guess we're all just nerdy guys who, you know, <laughs> you know, it's how we stand a chance of standing up to the jocks at school or whatever. I don't know, but uh, yeah, I, you know, I just really enjoy it. So it's just a case of trying to keep the old muscles and uh, everything going, because um, otherwise, you know, if you just sit at a computer all day and don't do any exercise, you get pretty fat pretty quickly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> we kept Andy on for like an hour and twenty minutes already. Uh, you have any other questions, Ian? Oh, I've got a question actually. Oh, okay. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, as a one-man band, do you think I should use a? Uh, do you think I should use a help desk system? Because I, I mean, I, you know, I just do everything in uh, my email client, which is Thunderbird. You know, and I can go and search and find all the emails somebody sent, and you know, I manage okay. And mm-hmm. I can, I can definitely see if there were two or three of us that were using that had to communicate yeah. we should definitely use a, a help desk system do you think there's any benefits for a one-man band like me there is i mean so definitely as soon as it's two people you absolutely have to do it like there's not even an option really in my mind because like as soon as you get into like shared folders and a mailbox and things like that like you will inevitably lose track of either just completely lose track of support requests or um, you'll lose track of which one of you know one of you will think the other one's working on it all those kind of things so as soon as you have two people doing it it's pretty much required. Um, but for the single person, you know, it, it kind of goes, uh, it kind of depends on your temperament and your organization. You could definitely get away with, you know, just using the email client. And for the most part, um, you know, it's going to be okay for one person. The kind of big advantages become things like 
the more reporting aspects. So if you're yeah. just stuck in the mail client, like you're going to get back to people at pretty much the same speed by using the help desk. And you're probably not going to see a lot of gains there. And you're probably not losing that much if it's only you working on it. But, uh, you know, you don't really know how many support requests you got that were bugs versus feature requests um, versus pre-sales, uh, you know, all those kind of things. Or, um you know, if you have different products, like in your case, like how, how many were for the professional version versus the regular version and all those kind of things. So you can get a lot more of those sort of metrics. And then, you know, you can kind of optimize off that if there's different areas that maybe need more attention or you should put more work in because you're getting a lot of support requests in this particular area. You know, without those numbers, you kind of end up doing it a little more just like by feel. It feels like, you know, a lot of a lot of questions in this area. And so you, you kind of work off that. And, and again, when it's just you, you have a fairly decent instinct of it. So, you know, cause you're, there's not two brains there. It's just you, you kind of know everything that's going on and you can get a, a feel for that. But it is nice to have that data, even just the quantity over time, you can see if things are trending up, are they trending down? Are you getting new types of su- support questions for um, whether it be for features or maybe you changed something on the website and now you're getting a new type of question that maybe you didn't get before and you can have, again, more kind of metrics around that. So uh, that tends to be the big area for a single single person company with whether or not they want to you know, have a more formal kind of help desk solution. Yeah. And, I mean, and, the, nerd, the nerdy guy, me singing, hmm, metrics. Right. <laughs> yeah. that, that's the big plus. I mean, and that's the thing, with uh, especially with Snappy, we've kind of optimized things more towards smaller companies, especially early on here. So like, um, like it lets you do everything through email. So we've kind of optimized it to be an easy transition for people like you, because you can actually do everything just through email. So like it'll email you when something comes in and you can just reply to that email and you can add tags when you reply. And so you can actually do everything without going into the interface in terms of responding to customers and all those things. And then, you know, you can just go into the interface once in a while when you want to run a report to see, you know, your different tag breakdowns and things like that. But uh, you don't have to actually necessarily, you know, be there with the browser open all the time and things like that. So, you know, uh, that that's nice. And then, um, you know, there's integrations with other applications and things like that that are possible as well that can be handy. Like, we actually don't have any of this in Snappy yet, but we're going to be working on it pretty soon. But one of the things I thought might be kind of cool is stuff like hooking it with um, Mixpanel or the other metrics tools, things of that nature, where even Google Analytics and, you know, you'd be able to track support requests alongside of some of the other metrics you collect. So there's some cool stuff that I think is possible there too, that would be applicable to kind of anyone. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I like it. Like I was by myself for four years. I mean, obviously it was my product, so that's good that I liked it. Uh, but I definitely find it very useful. The other thing I really like about it, that's kind of a sort of a, a hidden benefit of it is I really like the, the idea and just the feel of your email client just being for pure business and and personal, but not support. Um, so you kind of have that separation there. So it's just kind of nice to have that where the new emails that are in my inbox, in my mail client, those are, you know, maybe somebody emailing me for a business purpose, but it's not a customer service request. And then when I am in customer service mode, you know, I'll be in the help desk app working those. I mean, that's how I do it. Um, so it kind of separates those a little bit, which I find 
useful, especially if it, when I was one person, especially because, uh, you know, HelpSpot had a lot of support, you know, there's a lot of installation support and things of that nature. And if I didn't at least carve out, you know, a couple hours between doing support request runs, then I could just do support all day basically. And I would never get into the zone on the other things I had to do. So, uh, for me, that worked out really, really nice as well to be able to kind of break that up a little bit. Okay. Well, I'll have to put that on my, my nearly infinite to-do list. <laughs> <laughs> You've made it this far, so you know I can't say you absolutely must have it, but uh, it might be something to think about as a small optimization. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's always attractive. To, I mean, to have sort of numbers, but yeah, I don't, what I'd actually do with those numbers, if you know, if I, I guess it'd be useful to be able to say, well, you know, our average uh, support response time is, uh, because yeah, you know, I'm pretty responsive on the support. That is interesting to see, just in terms of like long term, if it goes down or something, it might be something maybe you hire a part time support person or something like that at some point. But uh, but I, I for the single shops, it tends to mostly be around the like what types of requests and things like that, so you kind of have a feel for where things are trending and, and those kind of things. Yeah, I, just, I mean, I still I still do the support after years because, I mean, it, it's my sort of, well, it's sort of part of marketing, really. You know, I'm understanding what, what people want, you know, what their problems are with it. And, and also, I mean, in the previous jobs that I had when I worked for various salary positions, you know, most of the software I wrote never really got used. You know, I'd spend months or years working on a piece of software, doing all these late nights, and then it would just go straight on the shelf and nobody would ever use it. So, you know, the fact that there's thousands of people out there using perfect table plan is, is really gratifying. You know? right. <laughs> so I don't, you know, I don't, I mean, occasionally you get a bit frustrated when you get somebody, you know, nearly always with an AOL email address who can barely turn <laughs> on a computer and they're asking you all sorts of crazy questions. Right. Yeah, uh, that's going to be frustrating. Yeah, that's, you know, at times like that, I wish I had somebody else to hand it off. <laughs> exactly. And you get pre-written replies for common things. You know, there's like some speed improvements and stuff like that. But um, yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of, you're kind of interesting too, because you cut across like consumers and businesses. So, I, you know, you kind of are a little bit rare in that regard, I think, too, where you have pure consumer purchasers and then pure business you know, yeah, it's, I mean, some people say you shouldn't do horizontal applications. And I mean, I didn't really sort of plan it this way. It's just the way it worked out. I sort of initially aimed at sort of weddings and bar mitzvahs and things. And and then businesses started using it. And um, so, yeah, so now I have quite a few. Yeah, so it's a mix of B2C and B2B. Right. Uh, um, yeah, and that's, that's just the way things. I mean, you know, you just don't know when you start out what direction it's going to go in. All sorts of, you know, crazy things have happened. I mean, it got used in part of the Royal Wedding. Wow, uh, that's great. You got to get that up on the homepage. I didn't see that on the homepage. Well, I, I put it in. Oh well, I don't know. They might send. Uh, they might send somebody <laughs> down to kidnap me and put me in the tower. But um, yeah, no, I got a, I got a, a phone call um, uh, a few weeks before. I think it was a few weeks or a month or two before the royal wedding, saying, "Oh, you know, we need to do this seating plan, and we need to have like a scrolling display." And I said, "Well, I'm actually working on that right now." Um, and they said, well, can you have it ready for this date? Because we, we've got sort of the – so there was like the main uh, – the A-list event that the Queen was at with mm-hmm. uh, with with the sort of – I don't know, all the people we want to suck up to, like the American president or whatever. Right. And there was the B-list event, you know, for the for the less – for the countries without lots of money or without any oil. <laughs> <laughs> so they used Perfect Day Plan at the B event um, oh. so that when people came in – so they could change – if people didn't turn up – you know, they could change the seating at the last minute and it would show up on this plasma display. So it's scrolling around. Interesting. 
there to see, which is something I've been working on. So I had this mad rush to finish it off. And yeah, it actually got used and apparently went very well and didn't crash or anything, despite the fact that it's still in beta. Uh, so this is actually another question I had for you that I forgot and now I remembered. So we're just going to extend a little bit more. Now, so all right, the SaaS version is, you know, probably not optimal. And you already, there's a lot of people kind of doing that poorly. But what about mobile? Like, this seems like the kind of thing nowadays, like, I'm an event planner. I have my iPad. Like, my iPad is what I use at the event. And more and more people are using it, you know, even to do productivity work kind of like this. So have you thought about an iPad version? Yeah, there's at least four or five iPad table planners now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're not but, perfect table plans. <laughs> <laughs> what I did put in is that you can, um, you can export your table plan to a, a, a web app on my uh, server that has all of the information and you can actually search for someone it will show you where they're seated but it's sort of read only you can't then make a change back to the because it's not server based it's desktop based so you know most people seem to be pretty happy with that um yeah, so I mean, so you once you've done your table plan with a couple of clicks, you can then publish it uh, to it to to my web app, and then you can you you know, you can browse that on your iPad. So you can have loads of people stand there with iPads saying, "Oh, you know, you're seated at table number five. And then if you change it on the the the, the laptop or the desktop, it automatically pushes itself to all the web devices. Okay. So that's sort of that's sort of a cheap and cheerful way. Right. <laughs> um, to get around that. But the nice. trouble is, I mean, as soon as you have like a server, then you've got all these issues about, oh, you know, making sure the server's up That's and it's down 10 minutes before the event, <laughs> what if they lose internet connectivity? And so it sort of swings and roundabouts. But I mean, I, I think the thing is to, to pick one thing and do it really, really well. So there's all sorts of things that Perfect Table Plan can do that none of my competitors can come even close to as far as I'm aware. So you could say you could have like a 2000 seat event and you could you can have custom fields where you identify which uh, organizations people are from. And then you can say, well, I don't want or, or, you know, and different you can categorize your guests. So this is a paying guest. This is a, a VIP. And then you can actually set the genetic algorithm to sit different types of people next to each other or away from each other. And then you can visualize all that on the screen. It will, you know, draw lines between the people that should be sitting together and show them in different colors. And, and then you can uh, do a second seating. We say, right, okay, I want to do a reseating, but I don't want anyone to sit next to whoever they sat to in the next, in the previous event mm. and do these sort of multiple seating. So there's all sorts of stuff wow. it can do like that. And it can print the place cards and it can put a colored spot on there if you're a vegetarian. And, right. you know, none, <laughs> none of the web apps can come anywhere close to being able to do, to have that sort of depth of, of functionality. Yeah. Um, so that's really what sells it. So, I mean, you know, I, I spend a lot of time on the marketing to get people in the door. But, you know, if I had a crappy product that didn't do what people wanted, they wouldn't stay for very long. So, I, I totally think that's, a, you know, it's actually the same exact model. Hellsoft's very similar in that. And and actually, it's they're remarkably similar. Just as we've been talking, it's kind of interesting because, like, the same thing you see with all the new competition is SaaS and, you know, maybe somewhat mobile. Um, like HelloSoft's the same way. Like now, like if you want to, you know, if you want on-premise help desk software, there's no new competitors at all. And there's a lot of people who've died off. And so, you know, there's kind of a limited market, you know, a limited um, competition in some ways in that area. So it's kind of similar in that way. And then like we've haven't never done asset management and all the other things that a lot of help desks do, you know, that are kind of outside the core of uh, just helping people and, and customer service. So, yeah, I, I definitely think 
that going deep on a single area. Yeah, I mean, that's my philosophy is to pick a really narrow problem and solve the hell out of it. I mean, if you're like one guy like me, the only chance of being number one in your market is, you know, to be like the best in the world at what you do is to pick some really narrow problem like seating planning. And and even so, like seating planning, it sounds really trivial, but actually to try and visualize where a thousand people are seating and to write a genetic algorithm that can seat them all optimally. And, you know, that's a really quite a difficult problem that, you know, I've been working on for eight years and there's still loads of room for improvement. I've still got a, you know, a, a database full of like you know 500 requ- enhancement requests right. or something <laughs> you know they're coming in faster than i can do them so right. you know i think it's i mean that's my approach is is not a wide approach a really deep approach pick one problem and i mean i like other software that does that things like Snagit is a, a brilliant tool for doing screen captures it does everything to do with screen captures and nothing else and i mean people are always asking me to do stuff like you know somebody today asked me oh can you put a to-do list in so that i can have a to-do list for my event and it's well right. well no because there's a thousand to-do list apps out there most yeah. people who want a to-do list have already got one uh, I'm not putting one in the software. I'm not going to do event registration because there's a thousand event registration systems out there. Yeah. So, you know, you just pick one really. If you are if you want, you know, stay small like me, you just need to pick one narrow problem and, and you know, really nail it, I think. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. All right. Well, I don't know. Do you have any other questions, Andre? Or, or do you have any other questions, Andy? No, I think that's probably it. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm good. I, I just right. wish I was in England so I could take the course. <laughs> get you out there one of these days. Plus, yeah, well, I should I should get a final plug in. So yeah, uh, it's twenty second, twenty third of November. Uh, SuccessfulSoftware.net. Come and have a look at the training course. If you're in Europe, uh, or if you fancy a holiday in Europe and I want to tax some training on the end of it, maybe you can write it off against tax. Who knows? Yeah, good idea. Yeah. I like that one. All right. And uh, if you want to check out Perfect Table Plan, that's at perfecttableplan.com. And uh, if you want to just chat with uh, Andy, he's also a recent sign up on our forums, right, Andy? Over yeah. Discuss that bootstrapped.fm. Yeah, good forum. I like the uh, I like the Discourse software. That's Jeff Atwood's uh, software, isn't it? Yeah. His yeah, new, it's been really project. good so far. Yeah, yeah it's, really pretty, like it. it's pretty smooth. I'm quite impressed. Yeah. All right. Uh, so we're done with this one thanks Andy for coming on being a great guest and uh, lots of useful advice and uh, I guess we'll be back again next week that's the plan okay. alright thanks <laughs> thanks bye bye bye